It was a great joy to be able to open up God's Word together today uh, as we continue uh, the series that we've been in in the, in the, in the time of Advent. Um, and as we've uh, talked about a number of times uh, this morning, Advent is a time of waiting. It is not what we typically think about in our culture. It is a time uh, for reflection. It's a time of consideration, uh, looking forward to Christmas, which is that great celebration time, right? Uh, so Christmas morning is supposed to be that, and then we're supposed to spend 12 days after that celebrating. Um, but we have kind of forgotten that in our culture in many ways, and so everything has been consumed in many ways by the idea of the celebration, the joy, uh, the lights, the tinsel, all the things that kind of go into that. You know, in fact, I heard uh, a pastor, a friend of mine, say one time that one of the challenges of Christmas uh, is going back to familiar stories uh, with familiar themes and letting them really address our hearts in such a way uh, that allows us to kind of not just be lulled to sleep by the things of the season. Uh, and he said that the biggest difficulty is that it's so easy this time of year to get wrapped up in all the nostalgia and the sentimentality. And as a result of all the lights and tinsel and frantic busyness of the season, our hearts can get hijacked and taken down a purely emotional track that prevents us from seeing and experiencing the truly incredible story of the incarnation of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this world. Um, and, you know, when I was a pastor in Rochester, Minnesota, many, many years ago, uh, there was an older gentleman in our church, uh, and he was an, an amazing guy. He, he uh, was on Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. He had these incredible stories about all kinds of uh, things that he had lived his life through and adventures that he had been on. And so he had seen almost everything that you could imagine. And I, he got on to me one day after church uh, because apparently I had been very liberal using the word incredible in my sermons. I used it all the time. As, as a pastor, you kind of get fixated on certain words sometimes. You don't even know you're saying them. And I had been repeating this word a lot in some of my sermons. And he rebuked me after a sermon one time very kindly. He was a loving guy. Um, but he told me in that uh, that there are only really two incredible things that have happened in the history of the world. And the first one is the incarnation of Jesus Christ into this world. And the second one you'll have to wait till Easter to find out about. It's a little you know, strategic foreshadowing for you there. Um, but that's what he said. And, and as I thought about that, he's really right. This idea of uh, something being incredible, if you look it up in the dictionary, actually means something that is so extraordinary as to seem impossible or unbelievable, right? And in many ways, that's what the incarnation is all about. It is something that is so extraordinary that it seems impossible or unbelievable. And what I want us to do this morning is actually to take some time to step back, uh, to ponder this story, to ponder what we are told happened in a little town of Bethlehem in an outhouse over 2,000 years ago, and to be able to uh, try, by the Lord's grace and the coming of the Holy Spirit, as he promises to join us as we open up his word, uh, to open our hearts and minds so that we uh, can, can break through the sentimentality this year, of this time of year, and consider anew uh, what it is that we celebrate in the Christmas season. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to actually be with us and to bless our time in his word. So let's pray. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for seasons. Um, and times of year that we get to uh, remember different aspects of your great story, your great gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would be with us now, uh, that you would open our hearts and minds, uh, that you would remember your promises to send your spirit upon us uh, so that we can uh, be awakened anew to the beauty, to the glory, to the wonder 
of the incarnation of our Savior. And we pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. All right. So I just want to dive into this passage this morning, and I want us to, as I said, just to kind of uh, step back for a moment and, and kind of ponder it anew, uh, think about it anew, and see what we can actually learn from it. And in verse 18 of this passage, uh, what, we, what we get here is uh, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And in this, uh, we are told uh, right off the bat about Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, and the fact that she had been betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, if you've spent any time in Christian circles or grown up in the church or, uh, you know, just generally been around the church in our culture at some point in your life, you probably have heard about Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Uh, she is a figure that is talked quite a bit about. We actually know quite a bit about her from the scriptures, uh, but you may not know quite as much about Joseph. And the reason for that is that we actually don't know as much about Joseph. Uh, the scriptures do not unpack as much about his life and what happened to him. At one point in the scriptures, uh, he kind of just disappears from the scene. And we assume that he probably had died at some point um, and, uh, because Mary is alone toward the end of Jesus's life. Uh, and that's what we assume in that. But we, because of this, and because the scriptures don't actually unpack this, we don't know a ton about him, but there are a few things that we do know about him. And uh, here are a few of those things. Uh, we know that he was from the line of King David. Uh, we see these in the genealogies that are laid out for us in different books of the Bible, uh, especially in uh, Matthew and Luke. And in verse 20 here, it says that he is the son of David, and that's exactly what it's alluding to, uh, this lineage of him being in the line of King David. Uh, we know that he was a carpenter by trade in the small town of Nazareth. Um, and we see this in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. We know that he was very poor. Uh, Luke 2 says that uh, we get this kind of picture of him sacrificing two turtle doves uh, when he went to the temple. And in the book of Leviticus, we know that the sacrifice of two turtle doves in this way was actually something uh, that was an allowance for the poor at the time. So we know that he didn't have a ton of money. Uh, we know that in this passage that he was betrothed to this woman named Mary. And when we hear betrothed in our culture, we tend to think of that they were engaged to each other, right? But that's not exactly what this word meant in that time in the Jewish culture. Uh, in the first century Israel, betrothal uh, was a much more binding kind of legal contract that you would have or status that you would have with someone. Uh, they were already considered to be married in the eyes of the law, even though they had not actually come together yet. It says in the passage they had not actually gone through the ceremony yet, um, but there was a binding contract that existed with them. That's why this passage can be a little confusing. It talks about their betrothal, but it talks about later on him, you know, wanting to divorce her quietly. Right? And so it says, well, are they married or not? Well, they were betrothed, and this was more of a legal kind of concept uh, that existed within the, uh, within the nation of Israel at the time. And so you have that. And finally, we know that he was a just man. That's what it says here in verse 19. The Greek word there actually means righteous. He was a righteous and just man. And this is illustrated by how he responds to this kind of incredible situation that he is put into in this passage. Um, if you look here at verse 18... Uh, we're told here by Matthew uh, that before they came together, uh, that Mary was found to be with child. And then in verse 20, it goes on to say, in response to this, that Joseph considered these things. Yeah, right, he did, right? <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, this scenario? Like this is, you know, and then it's good for us to step back and think about these things. You know, this would have been an sh utterly shocking situation for him. 
Um, uh, can you imagine what he must have been thinking in this moment? Can you imagine the heartbreak and the sense of betrayal that he must have been going through when he found this out? Can you imagine what he must have been feeling? After all, uh, what was he supposed to think? He, he didn't know anything about the incarnation of God at this point. He didn't know anything about the Christmas story um, and the, uh, the, the virgin birth or any of these kind of things. Uh, he was going off of what the Lord had said in his word at the time. And he had found out that this woman that he was betrothed to actually was pregnant. And this put Joseph in a very uh, kind of awkward situation, as you can imagine. He was a just man. And he knew that according to the law at the time, uh, that if this kind of situation were to happen, he was required by the Lord to actually divorce Mary and to let her go. But in order to do that, and in, as a result of doing that, he also knew that she would be incredibly shamed. Um, and in that culture, if you were caught in that kind of situation and shamed in that way as a woman, uh, it left you with very, very few options. Um, of, of ever having uh, any kind of family, of ever having any kind of income, uh, it would have left her in a really terrible situation. Uh, and what we were told here is that he loved her deeply. And he did not want to do this to her. He did not want to shame her. He did not want to break her in this way. And so he pondered these things. Um, and he considered what he should do. Um, and this is an incredible response. And it's worth us kind of taking a moment to kind of think about that for a moment. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that most of the time when we feel like we've been wronged by somebody, right? Our response is not to, to go uh, out of our way and sacrifice things of ourselves in order to make sure that they're doing well and that they're not shamed. Typically, what we want to do is take every opportunity to hurt those who we think have hurt us. We take great pleasure in exposing the wrongs of those who have wronged us. So we can deflect the pain and actually feel better about ourselves. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I do it, right? It's something that bubbles up from the inside of me every time you're hurt in that way or somebody you feels like you've been uh, uh, accused of something by something or hurt by somebody or wronged by somebody. You want to react in this way. And the amazing thing about this passage is that Joseph didn't react in this way. We're told here in verse 19 that he resolved to pursue the best option that he had to him at the time which was to try to divorce Mary quietly. And this is an incredible situation. It's an incredible response. However, the story doesn't end here. And the truth is, is it would be a pretty poor story if it did. If he just divorced her quietly, nobody would know who Mary and Joseph were. The story doesn't end here, though. In verse 20, we are told that while Joseph was still considering these things and deciding what he wanted to do or what he could do, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and delivered an incredible message to him. And what he said was that, that he shouldn't be afraid. For that which was conceived in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. Now, um, again, you know, it was a shocking situation for him to find out that Mary was uh, pregnant. And then you have this angel come to you last week or two weeks ago. We talked about the idea of uh, angels in the Bible are not just like your precious moments dolls. They are like warriors of light. This would have been uh, not a comfortable visitation right? Or a lovingly warm and fuzzy visitation. This would have been a warrior of light coming to him and telling him that he should not be afraid in this situation. Um, and that uh, that which was in Mary's belly was actually from the Holy Spirit. It was from God. Now, do you understand what that means? If you struggle to understand what that means, I can guarantee you that Joseph struggled to understand what that meant at the time. It was hard to wrap your mind around. 
An angel had just appeared to him and told him that the baby in his betrothed wife's belly was actually from God. He doesn't explain the virgin birth to him, again, or, or the doctrine of the incarnation, again. He just drops this bomb on him and then immediately goes on to tell him uh, that he should do these things. He gives him a couple of commands of things that he should do in his life. And the first one is this, that he's supposed to take Mary home to be his wife immediately. He shouldn't be afraid to do that. He should go ahead and do that. And then the second one is that he is the name, the child, Jesus. Now, if you're sitting here thinking that this is incredibly confusing, I can guarantee you that it was incredibly confusing to him as well, even more so. Can you imagine again what he must have been feeling? It's good for us to think about this. Can you imagine the thoughts that it must have been running through his head and his brain as he desperately groped to try to make sense of this entire situation? And where despite his confusion, what we're actually told here is that he does something again that's incredible. Uh, when he awakes from the stream, he doesn't go around and gather up his friends and try to figure out the situation and come up with a plan and determine whether or not he should follow this advice or not. No. What we are told here in verse 25 is that he immediately did what the angel told him to do. He took Mary home to be his wife, and when the child was born, he named the child's name Jesus. Now, how are we supposed to make sense of all this? Well, in Psalm 19, you know, we're given this incredible passage. Uh, and in that passage, we are told that God lavishly reveals his word to us within this world. And he has written down his revelation for us in order for us to be able to be reoriented to the reality of who we are in this world and where, who he is, uh, what his plan for our lives are, and the reality of, of you know, the, the brokenness of our world, but also the hope that we have in him. And he lavishes this upon us. And he, it's including this story as well. And in this, it says that God's word is actually a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Now, when you hear something like that, typically what we want to respond with is to think that in difficult and confusing times, like the one that Joseph is going through here, that when we go to God's word, that it's going to give us all the answers that we need in order to get through that. And there's a certain truth to that. But what exactly does that mean? Does it mean that God always gives us a full explanation of every situation or uh, the exact right steps to take in every situation in order to solve all of our problems? And the answer to that is absolutely not. He doesn't. You know, when it talks about in Psalm 19 about God's word being a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, it's talking about oil lamps. And oil lamps, if you've ever seen one on TV uh, or in some kind of old, you know, store that you can buy those in, are actually lamps that when you light them, give out a glow that gives you like a kind of a circle of light around you as you go forward. It's not like a great spotlight that shows forward like 200 yards in front of you, right? God's word oftentimes in his story actually enables us to see just enough to be able to follow him and to do his will. And that's a hard thing. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. It's hard for us to do because it requires an excessive amount of trust. And the question is, why should we trust? And why should Joseph trust in this passage? And the answer to that is that it actually calls us, God's word actually calls us not only to trust in his commands in particular situations, but to actually see our lives within the context of the larger story of scripture. As Aaron said earlier when he was up here, we believe that all of scripture is one great story and that one great story all points to Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. All of his commands, all of the prophecies, all of the things that we see throughout scripture are all part of this great story that actually enable us to see and understand our place within this world 
and how God is moving. And it enables us to have confidence even in the midst of times when we don't know exactly everything that's going on in our lives. That's incredibly comforting. It's an incredibly uh, helpful and hopeful thing. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Not only is Joseph called to obey in this particular situation, immediately after that, it connects this entire situation to the larger story of what God is doing in this world. In verses 22 and 23, if you look, it says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This was thousands of years before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you would read that passage and you would think, oh, well, that's just something that God said to Joseph in the time right around when Jesus was born. No, it was said thousands of years before. Preparing the way. God had laid out and told and promised the reality of what he was going to do and what he is calling Joseph in here is to, to see himself within the context of that story. The scriptures tell us that this Jesus who has come, the one who is being born, is not just some regular person. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the long-awaited Messiah and firstborn of all creation, we are told. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all, all of our lives and all that does live in this world. He is the second person of the Trinity and the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and all-glorious God of the universe. And what we are told here is that it's this very same Jesus that Matthew tells us here who entered into our world by the power of the Holy Spirit and is going to be born of this woman, Mary. Now that is truly incredible. Just think about that for a minute. Wrap your mind around it for a minute. The creator of all things, the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand, became a tiny, tiny infant inside a woman's womb. And the question that comes out of that is, how in the world could that be? How in the world could God become a child? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. I cannot explain to you all the intricate details of how the Holy Spirit made that work. Nor would I even want to try. Madeline Engel one time said, don't try to explain the incarnation to me. It's further from being explainable than the furthest star in the furthest galaxy. It is love, God's limitless love, enfleshed itself into the form of a human being, Jesus, the Christ, fully human and fully divine. And then she went on to say this, and I want you to just hear this in your head. Was there a moment, she asked, known only to God, when all the stars held their breath, when the galaxies paused in their dance for a fraction of a second, and the Word, who had called it all into being, went with all of his love into the womb of a young girl, and the universe started to breathe again, and the ancient harmonies resumed their song, and the angels clapped their hands for you. Incredible, isn't it? This is the message of Christmas. Everything else, all the decorations, all the lights, all the talk of presents and, and tinsel and all of those things together, as wonderful as they are, and I love those things, don't get me wrong, I love those things, but all of those things are secondary to this. 
and flow out of this. The creator God of the universe became a human. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when he did so, he received one of the most undignified welcomes that you could absolutely imagine in this world. You know, I, I read an article a few years ago about uh, the, uh, the president of Senegal who had taken a diplomatic trip to Canada. And when he landed in Ottawa, they actually mistook him for somebody else and strip searched him on the spot. And it created, as you can imagine, an international scandal. Unbelievably undignified for the president to be strip searched in this way just as he's going about his own business. That is nothing compared to what Jesus experienced when he came into our world. Jesus is the very creator God. Upon his arrival, he deserved nothing less than to have every person in every nation on the face of the earth come and fall down before him and worship him. He deserved to have every creature from, every, from the fiercest lion all the way to the tiniest insect come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have the creation itself offer him up worship and with the very rocks crying out glory to his name and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is God and anything less than this and acknowledging who he is and his royal person is an absolute insult, deserving of nothing less than the absolute punishment. Yet in the Christmas story, we were told one of the most incredible ironies imaginable. When God came to earth, the maker of the universe and all of his vast immensity, he spent his first nights in a feeding trough in a tiny little shack in the middle of nowhere. And here's the kicker. According to the scriptures, Jesus knew that this was going to happen. He knew that this was the reception that he was going to get, and he came anyway. He came anyway. 2 Samuel 7 says that the prophecy there proclaims that he would be from the son of David. Micah 5 tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7 says that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 53 tells us that he would suffer upon his arrival. And Psalm 118 says that he would be rejected by men. But if this is true, why in the world would he come? If he knew this thousands of years before and all of these prophecies pointing forward to the reality of his coming, if he knew this, why would he come? Why? Why would he come? And that brings us to our final incredible point this morning, and that is the incredible reason that Jesus came into this world. In verse 21, we we're told this. Jesus came into the world and took on flesh to save his people from their sins. He came because it was necessary for our salvation. Jesus, the very name of Jesus, the reason that he is told to be called Jesus, if you look at it in the Hebrew, actually says Yahweh saves. God saves. That's the, the personal name of God used in the Old Testament. Where you see, Joseph isn't the only one here in this story, faced with a great dilemma between wanting to be just and being merciful at the same time. According to the Christian story, all humanity has been unfaithful to God. One of the great metaphors in the Bible is that we are the bride of Christ and that he is our great husband or a great bridegroom. However, unlike Mary in our passage that we're looking at today, we actually have cheated on him and been unfaithful. 
And we actually do deserve to be rejected and shamed and turned out and cast aside. And this creates a great dilemma for God. On the one hand, God is a God of perfect justice who cannot allow his justice to go unserved. He must actually fulfill uh, the requirements of his laws in our rejection and our sin against him. But on the other hand, he is a God of immense love and mercy. Therefore, he desires nothing less than for us to be saved from the shame and punishment that we do vastly deserve. But how can God be perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time? And I would, I would ask you to ponder this this week. In all of the worldviews and the narratives and the stories that you hear in our world, one of the cruxes of all of those stories and different religions around the world is asking this question right at its core. How can you have both justice and mercy at the same time? Our culture is desperately dealing with that right now, right? How can we call for justice and still be merciful to people? And we're constantly going back and forth between those two things, and we're horrible at it because we don't know how to do those two things at the same time. Because if you're merciful without justice, what you're doing is you're letting people slide, right? You're just letting them get away with things, and that's abusive. It's wrong. It's terrible. But if you're just without any kind of mercy at all, you're just kind of heavy and hard, and there's no kind of sense of hope in the world because we know that we're all broken. So what in the world do we do? And the answer is, to all of this, is Emmanuel, God with us. Because Jesus is God, he was able to perfectly live the life of obedience and faithfulness that we could never do. And because he was man, he was able to substitute himself in our place as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and the death that we could never fully die. He willingly came and died in our place, and in doing so, he perfectly fulfilled God's justice and his mercy all at the same time and provided a way for us to be saved. In this, we can see that we are saved. We are not saved uh, by Jesus' birth. We're saved by his death. But without the incarnation, there could be no cross. There could be no resurrection. There could be no perfect life. There could be no perfect death. C.S. Lewis actually says this in his book, The Miracles, that the incarnation is the central miracle of all Christian faith. For he says every other miracle either prepares for it, exemplifies it, or results from it. And that's true. And what we need to understand here is that every other religion in the world says that morality and obedience is enough. Every other religion has a founder who says, I'll show you the way to get to God and to save yourself. Christianity alone says no, being obedient is not enough to save you from the horns of your dilemma. Being shown the way to God is not enough. God himself had to come. And wonder of wonders, the most incredible thing that our world has ever experienced or known or thought of or even imagined is that he actually did come. And he did so willingly because of his incredible love for you. Because of his incredible love for you. That's why he came. We are told all throughout the scriptures. And I don't know if you think about this uh, uh, especially if, if this is your first time around Christianity, if you haven't been around Christianity that much or you haven't been back to church all that much, all of these things are confusing, aren't they? And they kind of, to wrap your mind around these things can be hard. 
But I would encourage you to consider something this time of year as you ponder these things. That all the things that you are deeply longing for and searching for, maybe even the reason that you're here today, right? All the things that you're looking for in the tinsel and the lights and the nostalgia and the sentimentality of this time of year, those things will never deliver what you're de deeply longing for. However, the incredible good news of the gospel is that the Christian story is not a story of nostalgia or sentimentality. It's a story of true love. Dorothy Sayers, I don't know if you know who that is. Um, uh, she was a great writer. She was actually one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford University in England. Uh, and she wrote this entire series called the Lord Whimsy uh, series. Uh, and uh, and in those, uh, there was this kind of protagonist, a great hero called Lord Whimsy, and he would go around and he would solve all these crimes. And the wonder of this series is that several of the books, for many, many books in a row, uh, these great adventures, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the series, there's this woman named Harriet that shows up, Harriet Vane. And she falls in love with Lord Whimsy, and they get married, and they live happily ever after. And what Dorothy Sayers says later on is that as she was writing that story, she actually fell in love with her main character, and therefore she wrote herself into the story. Isn't that amazing? The Christmas story is the true story of how God loved you so much that he wrote yourself into this story. He was willing to do whatever it took, humble himself, become a man, experience incredible indignity, and even suffer and die so that you would be saved and reunited to him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes and trusts in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now that is truly incredible. You know, one of my favorite passages by C.S. Lewis, and I read a lot of Lewis, um, as you guys know, <laughs> uh, is when he talks about in one of his books how the idea of literature and art can actually allow us or help us to steal past the watchful dragons in this life and actually experience anew something that's truly beautiful and truly glorious. And what he means by that is that there's all kinds of nostalgia, there's all kinds of sentimentality in this world, and there are certain things that actually help us to steal past those things, which he calls dragons, and actually experience the thing itself anew. And he says that art is one of those things. And poetry is one of his famous forms of that. And so as we close our time together today, I just want you to hear this poem by uh, the woman that we named my daughter after, Lucy Shaw. And it's an incredible passage. And I, if you want to, close your eyes and just hear this and ask the Lord to actually help you steal past those watchful dragons and experience anew the wonder of what the Lord is doing this time of year. It's called Mary's Song. Blue homespun in the bend of my breast, keep warm this small, hot, naked star, fallen to my arms, rest, you who have had so far to come. Now nearness satisfies the body of God sweetly. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. He breathes, so slight, it seems no breath at all, once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw he dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, 
ears, eyes. He is curtailed, who overflowed all skies, all years, older than eternity. Now he is new, now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Let's pray. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. Come, Lord Jesus. Awaken us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond to the glory of your incarnation this time of year. Remind us of why you had to come, Lord. Humble us. Draw us to a place of repentance, but not a repentance that has no hope, Lord. Draw us to a place of seeing the hope that is everlasting in you, that our Savior has come, that our King has been born into this world, and that salvation has been given to us through him. And Lord, I pray that these great truths would knit themselves upon our hearts this season, and that we, O oh Lord, would rejoice truly this Christmas season in you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.